Escape Pod 426 December 12th, 2013 Flash Fiction Special Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm your host and editor, Norm Sherman. So it's been a long time coming. Over a year, actually. Whoops. Finally, we bring you the results of the third official Escape Pod Flash Fiction Contest, which we held back in September through November of 2012. Between the three Escape Artists podcasts, we had 157 total story submissions. Lots of really quality stuff in there, too. You folks voted, and we have your winners, each of which you get to hear on this week's show. In third place, the winner was C.L. Peria, with the story, The Future is Set. In second place, Ben Hallett, with his story, Life Sentence. And in first place this year, Leslie Ann Wilder, with her story, Four Tickets. Special thanks to everyone who participated, and a big shout-out to our forum's moderator, Itans, for all his hard work organizing the contest. A thankless job, indeed. Reading the stories for you this week are myself, Escape Pod's assistant editor Nathan Lee, and Escape Pod's assistant editor Nathan Lee's assistant wife, Angela Lee. So, slip out of them clothes and into that creepy trench coat, because it's flashing time. The Future is Set by C.L. Perea When I push this button, my robot armies will activate emerging from their strategically placed bunkers like swarms of locusts. They will storm the capitals of every state, providence, and country. Hundreds of innocents will die in the short war that ensues. I will come so close to conquering the world. The other supers will join the fray, but individually they will only slow the advancing masses of robot soldiers. It won't be long before they cease their bickering and turf force and unite against the threat the League will form, working together, to defeat my robot army and trace the signal back to my base. I could cut the signal early and run. I could hide in some dank corner of the earth. The remaining robots would fall limp and tracing the signal would become fruitless. But then, Lena would ask, Hey, how come Forethought didn't see this coming? Freeze will respond, He is a kook. Half his predictions never come true. But he should be helping, at least. Investigation would ensue, and the League would still find me. They would only be delayed, disrupting the timing, and timing is crucial. No, once I push that button, I must accept my fate, and I must push that button. The future is set. I will stay and continue commanding the robot army until the League tracks me down. With Ultra in the lead, they will breach my base. They'll catch me, beat me to within inches of my life, and lock me away in a hyper-secure prison. Ultra will forget his strength, and I will later die in my cell, bleeding internally from his superpowered punches. The worst part about seeing the future is you still have to live it. I detach myself from my emotions, stifling my fear of death and the empathy for the necessary victims. I push the button. Monitors switch from chaotic state to a myriad of views from my robot army cells. They march in perfect formation all across the globe. 
I flop down in my chair as the same scene plays out on every screen. Screams erupt as the slaughter begins. One by one, supers begin appearing on various screens, mounting attacks against my robots. Ultra arrives like a blur of light during sweeping punches that send scores of ruined robots into the air. Lena and Freeze work together on another screen, each systematically disabling one robot at a time. On a third screen, Current unleashes waves of electricity on the army with a look of great pleasure. Clusters of robots short-circuit and drop in heaps, but I have already seen all of this. I turn away. I don't want to see it again. I push the could-haves and should-haves out of my mind. I have already been down all those paths as well. The future is set. The people will call me a villain and unite in hatred against me, quashing nationalism and other boundaries that now separate humanity. They will have a commonality around which to relate to one another. And that is what will save them. A year from now, with my villainy still fresh in the minds of the people, with the League still in its prime, the alien motherships will arrive, spewing fighters like dandelions in the wind. The people will fight together as a united Earth alongside a League of superheroes, no longer on separate screens, but together one cohesive unit stronger than the sum of the individual parts. The invasion will not stand against such a force. I sit back, waiting for the future to play out. I smile to myself. I, I have saved Lena. I have saved Freeze, Ultra, Current, the other supers. I have saved countless civilians. I have saved the world. After the world is saved, a forgotten memory will surface, and Lena will look distraught. What's wrong? Freeze will ask. It's just... Her brow will crease in thought. I, I visited Forethought in prison before he died. I couldn't understand why he tried to take over the world. He must have seen we would beat him. His only response was, You're welcome. Freeze will place a comforting hand on her shoulder. He was crazy, Lena. Freeze will leave Lena to her thoughts. Comprehension will hit her like a flash, and she, the only superhero who took me seriously, will finally realize my sacrifice. And her eyes glistening, she will say, Thank you. Life Sentence by Ben Hallett John Babcock Hemingway, no relation, was born September 1842. He lived an unremarkable life, as first a student, then later a clerk of modest means. His death by tuberculosis in 1891 was fairly standard. Following one final gasping, breathless fit of bloody coughing, he expired. With a flicker, he awoke in the room. Gesture of astonishment. I... I am me. The being, returned after forty-nine subjective years to full consciousness, sputtered and trembled. I, I was another creature for its entirety, from birth to cessation. It roared mentally. I was not myself, but a mere shadow, an unbearably dim silhouette of true being. The arbiter indicated. Gesture of general agreement. 
The sentence for your crime, as previously communicated, is life. It bobbed briefly, and then reality flickered again. Mahamayuri Kapoor was born June 1994 in Delhi, India. She was a poor but happy student and formed many friendships. Her work in the e-Turk industry during the early 2020s allowed her to advance to a management position from which she eventually became an executive. At the age of 68, she slipped while stepping to a curb after exiting a cab and fell. The head injury, though seemingly minor at the time, resulted in the formation of a clot that escaped detection for two more years before causing a stroke in her sleep. She died peacefully. Her soul flickered, and she awoke again in the room. The being flashed many shades violently, its limbs shaking in extreme agitation. Outrage of the Seventh Order! This is barbaric! I am now burdened with two complete experiences of maudlin existence that I cannot expunge. What is this madness? The Arbiter rotated to the left to indicate patient explanation. Your crime is a well-documented matter of record. Your sentence of life must be carried out, and I am gesture of service to society, obliged to execute it. A limb extended, and reality flickered. Sanjen's newborn coughed hoarsely, the amniotic fluid still shining on its skin. The poor color of its skin and weak movement filled Sanjen with dread, and as he stared into the tiny face, its eyes opened. It looked up, shook briefly, then relaxed completely, its final blurry vision of the waving trees above in 2654 B.C. China faded inwards to a point with darkness all around, until moments later. Flicker. The room. Reticulated emotion 14. This is torture. Y you cannot flicker. May 2341, Post-Singularity Preserve, a.k.a. The Zoo, Frank Turnshan, A334B19, was born. 143 years later, as specified per contract, he ended. Flicker. Oh, stop, stop, the being cried. The arbiter paused. Yes, patience with limited duration. I, I apologize. My crime was contrition. Terrible, and I understand that now. The arbiter expanded upwards by one quarter in undefined emotion. Your callous removal of a main sequence star resulted in the extinction of a fourth order civilization and robbed existence of its eventual combined cultural output. Anger of injustice. It is not this one's place to counsel, but the enormity of your crime requires the fullness of understanding. You have lived four lives of the affected civilization. Your sentence, however, is life. It spun and stabbed at a control. Flicker. The unnamed human was born 25,000 years before the first real human calendar, and lived almost 23 years in the wilds of what was to later be called Tanzania, before being killed by a predator. Flicker. Oh, stop! The being threw itself at the walls of the room to no effect. 
The arbiter touched the controls wordlessly. Flicker. Susan Bennett's life was hard and best left undescribed. She died at thirty in 1733 of internal injuries. Flicker. Oh, I beg of you. Panic. Please, no more. The being tried to cover itself, but the room offered no cover. The arbiter, again calm, poised a limb over the control. Now that the calibration is complete, the remainder of the life sentence will be executed under automatic switching. We will not speak again until it is complete. The being, already crushed by centuries of subjective life and death, looked up blankly at the instrument of its torment. Please, how many of this dead race's dull lives must I endure before my life sentence is complete? The arbiter paused the gentle perambulation of its second-order limbs and tightened its primary around the control in anticipation. Carefully, it spoke without any outward emotion. Why, all of them. Flicker. 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 Four Tickets by Leslie Ann Wilder It's the only fair way. Mabel traces the edge of her respirator mask, makes sure there is no crack for the airborne toxins to wriggle in and burn holes in her lungs. She smooths the overalls over her belly. No swell yet. She's hungry, but it's worth it. She has four lottery tickets this week. Mabel sits by the playground and chats with friends. Their children's respirator masks are painted with elephants, snakes, and monkey tails, and the children run after each other for as long as they can without gasping. They laugh, and it sounds magical. Deadly, terrifying, and freeing all at once, like setting money on fire. No matter how bad things get, children fill Mabel with a sense of hope and gravity. Little Saul can read a whole book by himself, Rachel says, muffled behind her mask. He's got a couple years yet, but we think he'll be able to test into the domes after puberty. Think of it. A good job, something executive. He's a sweet boy. He'll send us back money. He'd never forget us. Rachel coughs, and on the gray rungs of the playground ladder, Saul wheezes to himself. Mabel doesn't say it. No one says it. Rachel's a sweet woman and hopes all she's got. The factory's staying open, Wendy whispers. They're cutting pay, but at least they're not shutting down. Her daughter, Paige, limps when she runs, but she's so big, so healthy. Wendy fills out Paige's braid with doll hair she steals from the factory, so it's thick and shiny as a respirator hose. Mabel doesn't approve of theft. Everyone gets caught eventually. But Paige's braid is so fine, and the girl seems so happy. Like the girls in TV commercials, on green lawns, in snowsuits, up above the clouds. Mabel turns the lottery tickets in her hands. It feels good to be here with these women she's grown up with, away from the men and the drinking. Watching the children run, listening to them laugh. She and Ralph have been trying for years now. This is the first time they've made the second trimester. It's noon. Old Gladys brings out her smartphone and the woman expecting children separate from the woman who finished. They lean over the small screen, and the black, pitted plastic benches creak. Five, shouts Gladys as the number comes up. Mabel throws away one ticket. 
It's not worth a damn if you don't have all six numbers. What are you doing here? says someone. Mabel looks up. It's Ellen. Her mask polished up so the olive green looks like grass in the catalog. Ellen and Jack. The other women slide away. They give her looks like dirty ice. Mabel looks back down. Twelve. Twenty-three. She and the others let ripped paper fall onto the wet concrete. She has one ticket left that could still win. That's better than usual. Jack has no mask. Jack's skin is clear, smooth, brown as seeds that could still grow. He climbs to the top of the metal turtle easily. He lies on his belly and tries to pull up Saul, but Saul can't breathe. He falls and starts to cry. Rachel scoops him up and he hurries away with no goodbye. The other woman scowl at Ellen. This is her fault. Eleven. Mabel holds her stomach and sucks in filtered air. She has four numbers. Jack runs, jumps, and laughs. His laughter is the most beautiful, terrible thing Mabel has ever heard. Paige sits in a corner and pulls doll hair out of her braid. People have whispered about Jack. He can already do algebra. His T-cells can fight off all known pathogens and most new mutations. His internal pH autocorrects. He speaks Mandarin without an accent. Thirty. Mabel only needs one more number. It's not his fault, Ellen is saying. He's lonely. He misses his friends. What's wrong with you? Didn't we all grow up together? Wendy bends over Paige like a blast shield. Get out of here and stop rubbing it in our faces. Gene mods are expensive, and they only work in utero. Fetal survival, skill, health, adaptation. Everyone puts in. One person at a time can win. Ellen is weeping. Her eyepieces have a waterline. She holds Jack to her chest and runs away. On Gladys's screen, the last number is 15. Mabel puts the ticket in her pocket and cries. those were our flash winners hope you dug them again thanks to everyone who submitted i think we had a great year now assuming you haven't heard enough of this guy already let's go to assistant editor nathan with story feedback take it away nathan greetings and salutations escapodians assistant editor nathan here with the feedback for episode 422 deshaun stevens shiplog by marie vivert this was the story of first contact as managed by a hapless schlub in the bromance mold where lovable losers come out, if not on top, at least in a reasonably happy place for no reason other than making the audience smile. The specific justification given that the clipped and idiosyncratic speech Deshaun used in his log was easier for the aliens to understand prompted an extended and eventually quite involved discussion of linguistics and language theory, which I don't really have space to do justice to here. Later, Varda, also one of the linguistics wranglers, made the point that the story arc closely matched that of Bridget Jones's diary, but with a neurotic male in place of a neurotic female. Carlos Ferreira responded, Exactly. I especially like the fact that the protagonist is a male. This genre of diary fiction often involves female main characters, as if this sort of emotion and slightly self-pitying behavior is an exclusively female trait. No, men do it too, just as much as women. I have. It's one possible outcome of finding oneself a bachelor in an unwanted situation. I wonder if a lot of the dislike reported isn't related to being told the story from the point of view of a male cast as the proverbial airhead. 
As to the relevance of the document, isn't historical research strongly based on personal reports? I find it entirely plausible that if contact does happen, someone tangentially involved could be wallowing in this sort of emotion. The papers will outdo each other with booming headlines, scientists will scurry to provide the best hypotheses, explanations, and predictions, but the guy bringing the coffee will be wondering if so-and-so's attributes are natural or surgically enhanced. Human nature. The story captures it really well. Zelda had a more paranoid take. I was frustrated by how little information we got about the aliens. They had to have an agenda of some kind, but we didn't get any clue what it was. The narrator was a perfect choice if the aliens wanted information to flow in one direction only. He'd happily tell them whatever he knew and had no interest in figuring them out. Unblinking got into the spirit of things, saying, Was entertained. Had plausibility issues, but unimportant, because funny. Alistair, perfect read. Unblinking also gave us a neologism of his spouses, paranoia. If something annoys you, you become annoyed. Therefore, if something paranoys you, you become paranoid. As in, the always-on GPS aspect of cell phones paranoys me. I urge all our listeners to begin using this word immediately, because it pleases me. Join us next week when aliens read the comments thread for episode 423 and realize they'd probably be better off not revealing themselves after all. See you then! Thanks, Nathan. All right, folks, it's about time to wrap up this week. Remember, Escape Pod's a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and it's brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. We run off the generous support of listeners such as yourself. Consider donating to Escape Pod to help us pay authors and keep the show going. Check out www.escapepod.org to find support options. Our opening and closing music is by monster surf rock band Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quotation this week comes from George Orwell, who wrote, Winston had nothing to do with the lottery, which was managed by the Ministry of Plenty, but he was aware that the prizes were largely imaginary. Only small sums were actually paid out, the winners of the big prizes being non-existent persons.